So we're going to carry on our series in Colossians. Uh, We're going to pick up where we left off last week. We're going to look at Colossians chapter 1, just a couple of verses this morning. We're going to look at verses 21 and 22. And just as you're turning there, let me pray for us as we sit before God's word now. Father, we thank you for this very special privilege of opening your word together. Lord, we pray that you would be with us and amongst us. Lord, would you give us ears to hear you speak to us this morning? Lord, you've already offered us comfort and help from your word, and we pray that you would do so all the more now as we give our undivided attention to it. Lord, would you show us Jesus? Help us to see him placarded, presented before our very eyes. I pray, Lord, that we might see your great love for us in him and that our love for you would be stirred once again as we see all that Christ has done for us. In his name we pray. Amen. So Colossians chapter 1. Let's read from verse 18 again where we were last week, but it's 21 and 22 that we're particularly looking at today. Uh, And I've called this morning's message, The Greatness of Our Reconciliation. The Greatness of Our Reconciliation. Verse 18, here is what Paul writes. And he, Christ, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. We looked last week, if you can remember, at the, uh, the supreme sufficiency of Christ in his church. And in particular, one thing we saw was how the church, we are the first fruits of a brand new creation that is still to come. We saw that one day, all of creation is going to be reconciled to God in Christ. And Paul's focus last week was on this kind of cosmic reconciliation, the the, the one-day reconciliation of all things to come. Uh, he, He kind of brought our eye to the telescope to show us how one day all things in heaven and on earth would be brought into harmony with our creator. But now in these next few verses, these next two verses, he takes our eyes away from that big, wide, telescopic view of all things being reconciled to give the Colossians and us, a much more personal view of how each one of us has already experienced this profound reconciliation with God through his son. And reconciliation is, without a doubt, one of the most important and I think one of the most moving terms that the Bible uses to describe the blessings of our salvation. Uh, along with, perhaps, and you know, the Bible is full of terms for what God has done for us, but I think along with four other richly descriptive words that the Bible uses most often alongside of reconciliation. Uh, Those other four words would be justification, redemption, forgiveness, and adoption. Now, these are words that we perhaps, I know, sometimes just throw out too readily 
and interchangeably, maybe we don't always explain what they mean, and that's not always helpful. But it's also not helpful for us to uh, shy away from using them, just in case someone doesn't already know what they mean. The best thing is to use them often and to explain them often. Because God in his wisdom has given us these rich and varied terms in order to capture the richness of the blessings that are ours in Christ. These are words for us to relish and enjoy and uh, enjoy diving down into the depths of. Words for us to be continually exploring more deeply so that we can enjoy our salvation more deeply as well. So I thought we'd start this morning just by briefly defining each of those five key salvation terms to highlight the kind of the nuanced differences between them before we dive into Paul's own definition of one of them, reconciliation, and all that that means for us. So uh, here are those five key words. They should come up. There we go. I'm sorry. It's a little bit small this morning. I need to go widescreen with these. Um, Here are these five key words the New Testament uses to describe the richness of our salvation. Hopefully these are helpful. So in justification, the sinner stood before God guilty and condemned but is now declared righteous. In redemption, the sinner stood before God as a slave, but is now granted his freedom. In forgiveness, the sinner stood before God as a debtor, but the debt is now paid and forgotten. And then we've got two more. Here's this morning's. In reconciliation, the sinner stood before God as an enemy, but has now been made his friend. And in adoption, The sinner stood before God as a stranger, but now he is made a child. So there we go, just some brief definitions. I I found that helpful this week, thinking about those. Now, it's not five different salvations. And for those writing them down, perhaps we'll send them out. That might be helpful. Send them out to you. Um, But Nick, you can cycle through them a couple of times if you like while I carry on, if that's helpful to some. These aren't five different kinds of salvation, let's be clear on that. But they're showing us five different facets of this one priceless jewel that is our salvation in Christ. They're five things that God does for each and every person the moment, the very moment we first turn from our sin and put our trust in Jesus. And now here in Colossians 1, 21 and 22, Paul wants to zoom right in on one of them, on the fourth one on that list, to tell us more about the greatness of our reconciliation in Christ. He wants to bring that one into even clearer view for us. But he's doing it with a particular goal in mind, and we're going to look more at this next week in verse 23. His goal is not just to massively encourage the Colossians with the magnitude of what God has done for them. It's certainly that. But he also wants to stress the importance of not shifting away from this, not shifting away from the sure and certain hope that is theirs in Jesus, not shifting away from this blessing of reconciliation and and thinking, oh, there's got to be much bigger and better blessings out there somewhere else for us to find. Paul's theme in these verses this morning is quite simply the greatness of our reconciliation in Christ. And there's a really simple structure here that we're going to follow this morning. Two verses, two points. Verse 21, he reminds them of what they once were. And in verse 22, he tells them, he tells us 
where they now stand. So what they once were, what you once were, where you now stand. Okay, so first one then. What you once were, verse 21, he says, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Now here's a verse that we might at first be tempted to skip over. This is not one we would like to camp out in. We might be thinking, I didn't come to church this morning to be depressed and discouraged and reminded of my sin. But remember what Paul's doing here. He wants to give us an even richer and deeper appreciation of the glorious reconciliation that has been given to us. And the most striking way to do that is simply to remind us of the truth of where we once were. To remind us of the devastating position in which we once stood so that we'll even more keenly enjoy the blessed position that we've been brought into. And though the contrast between then and now could not be more stark, Paul is simply telling us how it is here. There's no exaggeration here. And what we once were only serves to magnify the wonder, the the jaw-dropping wonder of where we now stand, reconciled to God in Christ. There is great blessing for us in remembering where we once were. Before then, we remember where we now stand. So, where were we? We were, first of all, alienated. We were alienated. Now, don't think of little green men. My mind often goes there when I see this word. Not those kind of aliens. This is speaking of us having been like foreigners, outsiders to God. We were estranged, cut off and separated from him. There was a complete relational breakdown between us and God. And it's no small thing to be cut off from God, is it? To be cut off from the creator and sustainer of all things. Uh, Ephesians 4 verse 18 talks about us having been alienated from the life of God. We were shut out from God's life-giving presence. Having no hope and without God in the world. Paul is painting here the picture of the most terrible kind of loneliness. Of isolation and separation from our creator. It's a bit like the moment, think about that moment when you, you walk into a room full of strangers and you suddenly feel very alone. We were alone. We were outcasts. We were exiles, shut off, cut off, locked out, estranged from God. But what made it worse is this wasn't just some terrible accident. This wasn't a series of unfortunate events We weren't the victims of alienation. We were the perpetrators. We were cut off from God because of our sin. As Isaiah once told Israel, Isaiah 59, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you. It was our sin that was the cause of our separation from God. And as Paul goes on to describe, it was our sin in both thought and deed. Firstly, he says we were hostile in mind. He's telling us that the very thoughts and attitudes of our minds were hostile towards God. That word hostile literally means hateful. In our heart of hearts, we hated God. When we thought about God, we saw red. 
We hated that he was God. We hated that he was our rightful king. We hated that he was holy and worthy of worship and praise. Romans 1 verse 21 says, For although we knew God, we did not honour him as God or give thanks to him, but we became futile in our thinking and our foolish hearts were darkened. Our whole way of thinking about God at this time in our lives was darkened and corrupted. We suppressed the truth about him. It's like we, it's like we gouged out our own eyes in order to convince ourselves that he wasn't there so that we wouldn't have to acknowledge him. As Aldous Huxley, the, novel of, uh, the author of the novel Brave New World, if anyone's ever read that, that's a depressing read, actually. But as he once wrote very uh, uh, um, helpfully, actually, he said, I had motive for not wanting the world to have meaning. And consequently, consequently, I assumed that it had none, and I was able, without any difficulty, to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. I had motive for not wanting the world to have meaning, he says. We all had motive for not wanting to acknowledge God as God, because we were hostile in mind towards him. And, because next Paul tells us, we loved doing evil deeds. Evil deeds were the inevitable fruit that springs up, that sprung up from our hearts that were hostile to God. John 3.19, we loved the darkness rather than the light because our works were evil. So just as surely as apples grow on apple trees and pears grow on pear trees, so evil deeds sprung forth from our evil hearts. And this here is the real reason, the heart of the reason why our world is so full of wickedness and injustice and evil behavior. This is why, amongst many other things, this is why there are 100,000 Russian troops currently stationed on the Ukraine border. It's ultimately because men and women commit evil deeds because their minds are hostile to their maker. And Paul is telling us every human being is born into this. All of us were once like this. And everyone who does not come to Christ to be saved remains like this, hostile to God, whether they're willing to recognize it or not. And oh, how much at times it was our natural instinct to fight against accepting this. Kent Hughes tells the story of a a great 17th century Christian woman and encourager of God's servants, Lady Huntingdon, maybe you've heard of her. Uh, if you ever read a biography of George Whitfield, she pops up as being this amazing supporter of George Whitfield and many other uh, Christian evangelists, especially at the time. So she was, she was a, a, a great woman who did much for the Lord. And uh, the story is told of her inviting one of her friends, the Duchess of Buckingham, to hear George Whitfield preach. And... She, the Countess of Huntingdon, received this reply from her friend as this lady listened to George Whitfield. This lady said, It is monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl on the earth. This is highly offensive and insulting, and I cannot but wonder that your ladyship should relish any sentiment so much at variance with high rank and good breeding." This lady does not like what she's hearing as she hears George Whitfield tell her about her sinful heart. 
The diagnosis of our hearts is not pretty, and it may not be at first easy to swallow, but it's true. And it was immeasurably loving of God to make it known to us. And it was infinitely loving of God to make a way of rescue out of it for us. Here is what we were. Every Christian believer here this morning, here is what we once were. But this is our past. This is not our present. And what Paul goes on to tell us next is where we now, in total contrast, stand. From darkness to light, from black to white, here is where we now stand. Our second heading for this morning, where you now stand, verse 22, you, he says, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. In the miracle of all miracles, we have been reconciled to God. In spite of all of our sin, in spite of our hostile minds and our evil deeds, God has made peace with us. As it, as it says back in verse 20, through or by the blood of Christ's cross. God has made peace with us. And it's the cross that Paul immediately draws our attention to again here as he connects our reconciliation directly to Christ's death. You see, there's, there's no convoluted, roundabout way that somehow Christ's death uh, changes us somehow. You know, somehow maybe it woos us and persuades us to find our own way back to God. No, no, no. The connection here is direct and clear and bloody and essential. We have been reconciled, Paul says, in his body of flesh by his death. And you see, do you hear there what emphasis Paul puts on the, the actual historical physicality of Christ's death? Those words, in his body of flesh. Because the good news of Christianity is not this intangible spiritual idea. It's not some disembodied philosophy. The good news of Christianity is rooted in actual history. And it centers on the actual physical death of the Son of God who died for us, who came in human flesh, bore our sins in his body on the tree. Christ didn't pretend to die. He didn't just pass out and wake up later in the tomb. He really was substituted and sacrificed for us. His actual death in the place of our death. His actual separation from the Father in order to remove our separation from the Father. Only when Christ breathed his last breath was the curtain in the temple torn in two. Only by his actual death can we be truly reconciled to God. But die for us, he did. 1 Peter 3.18, being put to death in the flesh, he suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And so if you have put your hope in him this morning, Christ has, past tense, brought you to God. You have 
been reconciled to God through him. The way has been open and you and I have already entered in. And the results are nothing short of incredible. Look at what Paul goes on to say. These results are incredible. Christ's reconciling death makes us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. These are our qualifications. This is how we stand even now as reconciled people before God. It's like, we're, it's like we, we, we were invited to stand up at a graduation ceremony. Uh, and maybe some of you have had a graduation ceremony in school or university or somewhere else. Um, perhaps not quite like the one I'm about to describe. Certainly this wasn't like my graduation. You, but in this one, you stand up and all of your exams have been passed. And with distinction. There's a gown upon you, a sash around you, and the, the fully qualified certificate is placed into your hands. Nothing can reverse what has been bestowed on you now. But it wasn't us who passed these exams. We, we failed all the tests. Imagine they're standing at your graduation ceremony, but you failed all the tests. We were absent from all of the classes here. We did nothing to earn any of this. In fact, until very recently, just before our graduation, we fought actively against it. But Christ has passed all the exams in our place. He has passed them all with distinction, with perfection, and then by his death, he has chosen to freely bestow all of that merit, all of that qualification on us. And so first of all, Paul says, we have been, we have been, past tense again, presented to God as holy. Meaning that while we still, for the time being, live in this world that is hostile to God, we no longer belong to this hostile world. We belong to God. We have been set apart for him. That's what it means to be holy. We have been set apart. We have a restored relationship with the creator of the universe. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so to say then that we are holy is to say that he now views us. God now views you this morning and me this morning as set apart for him. He views you as his. He views you as holy. Second, in Christ, Paul says, we have been presented to God as blameless, a, a word which literally means without blemish. It's a word that was used in the Old Testament to describe the most important quality of any sacrifice that was going to be offered to God, that it be pure and without blemish. Now, even more amazingly, this here is the same word that the New Testament uses to refer to Christ as the spotless Lamb of God. Okay, now making these connections. Christ, the spotless Lamb of God. But this word is being applied to us and to every Christian. Many of us at various times can wrestle with a deep sense of abiding uncleanness. We can feel tarnished and we can feel dirty and we can feel soiled because of sins we've committed in the distant or perhaps the not so distant past. Maybe sins we've even committed this week. We can feel deeply stained in the eyes of God. 
Now, I know what it's like to be haunted by the recollection of particular sins that I've done in the past and to be left feeling like the stain will never be taken away, like it could never be removed. But here's the thing. The stain has been taken away completely. God himself has washed you. He has washed it all away. He has washed us white as snow through the perfect, spotless, blameless sacrifice of his son. Christ died for the profoundly imperfect, for the profoundly unclean, in order that we might gain his perfection, his spotlessness, spotlessness, his blamelessness as a gift. Whatever our past deeds might be, whatever, however evil our past deeds might be, whatever the vehemence of our previous hostility to God was like, however much we hated him, we stand before God now this morning without any stains at all. Not a single one, not a spot. Christ's perfect purity covers all of our impurity. And it's like Teflon. You know, if you've got a really good saucepan that's got a really good coat of Teflon on it, nothing we ever do in future can stick to it when we are clothed in his spotless righteousness, his blamelessness. We, we sang the hymn last week, There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains, lose all their guilty stains. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all our sin. We stand holy, we stand blameless. And thirdly and finally, we stand above reproach before him. And where that word before blameless referred to our purity before God, above reproach refers to our legal standing before him. It's, it's a reference actually to our justification, which we're all freshly reminded of what that means, aren't we? Uh, the fact that no one can bring any charge against us. Mark Maynell writes, The charge sheet against us, which was getting longer with every new day of our lives, is now blank, wiped clean. There is nothing on it. We are innocent before God. It is astonishing. Or as Paul himself puts it in Romans chapter 8, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. The astonishing reality is that in all of these ways that Paul lists out here, God sees us in Christ even now, just as we will one day be in heaven. Just as we will one day be in heaven. That is how God sees you and I this morning. If our trust is in Jesus. Even now we stand holy and blameless and above reproach in him. And it is entirely through Christ and his death that God has done this for us.
The fact that every single Christian, whatever our past, can say, I'm holy, I'm spotless, I'm innocent. This is never something that could ever be the result of our own efforts or in any way what we deserve. You and I could never achieve this for ourselves, could we? I think, of course, we know that. We could never achieve this verdict for ourselves. No amount of vigorous self-effort on our part could ever make us holy before God. No amount of scrubbing and detergent that we might apply could ever wash away the stain of our former sins. No amount of excuses and carefully structured defense could ever make us above reproach in God's law court. But these are gifts that God has bestowed on us freely because of the infinitely costly work of Christ, because Christ died for us. We have been reconciled. Once we were God's enemies, now we sit here as God's friends. That is the truth this morning. That is the stark contrast. That is where God, by his grace, has taken us. That is how he has transformed our standing before him. We are reconciled to him. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why is Paul telling us this? Why is he wanting to tell the Colossians all of this? Well, it is in particular because he doesn't want them to underestimate what has actually happened to them. He doesn't want them to suffer from FOMO. Okay, most of us are familiar with FOMO. Not perhaps a term that was around at the time, uh, but certainly a, a concept. The FOMO is, of course, the fear of missing out. It's like when you... Uh, social media has really kind of ramped this one up for us, hasn't it? You, you look around at someone else's possessions or their holiday or their family or their lifestyle and you fear that you're missing out on something amazing that they've clearly got and that you clearly haven't. Well, FOMO can be a part of our Christian experience as well. Perhaps we look around at other Christians and we, we worry that their Christian experience seems to be so much better than ours. Maybe it appears like they've got more joy or better gifts or more prestigious ways to serve or, as was especially Paul's concern for the Colossians, maybe we worry that others are having a superior spiritual experience to ourselves. That maybe they've tapped into some deeper secret of how to succeed in the Christian life, of, of how to more deeply enjoy God and, and have spiritual encounters with him. And we start to wonder if what we have so far in Jesus is really enough. We start to wonder if it isn't just a bit underwhelming and unimpressive and not worth getting excited about. Perhaps some of us might even envy other people's conversion stories. Our own perhaps just seems a bit run-of-the-mill and unimpressive compared to theirs, and we wonder if much really happened to us on that day, whether we can pinpoint the day or not, but we wonder, did much really happen on that day when I got saved? Well, yes, it did, according to Paul. Oh, so much happened to you on that day there is not one bit of dramatic, life-changing difference between me and you, between you and the person next to you in terms of what happened when God saved you and reconciled you to himself. Because the biggest thing that could ever happen, the biggest thing that will ever happen to you and I, 
to any man or woman or child in this world has already happened to us. The moment we put our hope in Christ. In that moment, we were brought from death to life. From hostility to holiness, from darkness to light, from stained to spotless, from enmity towards God to the fullest possible acceptance before him. In an instant, in that moment, that is what has happened when we were converted. There is nothing that will ever compare to that. Nothing that will ever beat that. There is no fear of missing out for the Christian. What could we possibly be missing out on? What could another believer have that really matters that we don't already have too when every single one of us who is in Christ has this, has reconciliation with God. We have been reconciled to God and it is all because of Jesus and it is a treasure to be prized and to be celebrated and to be sung about. It is a treasure to be held on to and not to be forgotten. It is a treasure to return to again and again and again throughout our Christian lives, throughout our Christian days. It is a treasure that God has given us, reconciliation with himself. It is a relationship that we are now in for us to enjoy It is access to God that we never had before, but we have in the fullest possible sense now. It is confidence to draw near to him, to come with all of our, uh, to come warts and all, with all of our ongoing struggles with sin and weakness and shame, to bring it all to him because we have been reconciled to him, because we have been welcomed before him, because in Christ we have been washed clean. And it is all because of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the greatest thing that ever could have happened to us has happened to us, has been done for us, given to us by you in Christ. Lord, we thank you that you have saved us. And Lord, we thank you that as part of that salvation, we have been reconciled to you. Oh Lord, we are keenly aware of what we used to be how we used to be hostile in mind and pursuing evil deeds, but we thank you this morning that you have rescued us in the most mighty, dramatic possible way. Father, we thank you that you have rescued us from that life completely. Lord, that even the remaining sin that exists in our life right now does not extinguish or deny or in any way cancel out the fact that that is what we once were and it is not what we are. It is not who we are in Christ. And Lord, we thank you that this morning we stand before you reconciled, able to call you our God and our Father and even our friend. Lord, we pray that you would take us deeper into the riches of this truth. Lord, in this coming week, may we be deeply affected by this reality that we are reconciled to you. Lord, would you help us to live in the good of this? Would you help us to encourage each other with this? Would you help us to believe that this is true of us and that it's all because of Jesus? Oh, Father, how we treasure him, how we love and adore him, how grateful we are for all that you have done for us in him. Help us, Lord, once again to lift our voices now, to celebrate him, to honour him for all that he has done in our place. Help us, Lord, to sing as those who are reconciled to you. 
who can approach you in prayer and song and give you all of the glory that you deserve. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.